is the, is the kingdom of God coming? Like we can answer that in a, in a head way, right? Yes, the kingdom of heaven is coming to earth. But did you wake up feeling that? I don't know about you. I woke up feeling, oh, seriously? That was my first thought. Like it's morning already. Uh, the, the reality of life is such that it can be hard to live like these ultimate realities actually are ultimate realities. You know, we're in a, in a moment like this where we've taken some time, we've slowed down, we've read from God's word, we've prayed, we've sung precious truths of the gospel, we've reminded ourselves of who Jesus is and the grace that's ours in him, we've gone before him in prayer. So in this moment, if I ask you, is the kingdom of heaven real? Is it really coming to earth? Chances are we're most likely to say yes now. We're most likely to feel it now. Then we're going to leave here and we're going to go home and someone's going to annoy us. If we make it that far, probably someone will cut us off on the DVP on on the way home. Um, And then by the time Monday morning comes around and we roll out of bed again and get on the TTC to go back to work or go on with our day, we're feeling a lot more of the fallenness of this present earth than the coming of the kingdom, aren't we? We can have moments when our hopes are high, and we're excited about what God is doing, then it feels like those get dashed quickly sometimes, doesn't it? What we sing about and celebrate on Sundays loses its gravity by Monday morning. Do you believe that the kingdom of heaven is actually coming to earth? Because if we do, if we actually believe that, it will matter. It will bring change. I want to show you this from Matthew, from Matthew chapter 21. As Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem, there's a few lessons in here for us, I believe, about the coming of this kingdom. The first is simply this. I'm just trying to be as explicit as Matthew is. The kingdom is coming. So we're asking, asking the question, is the kingdom coming? Yeah. Okay, let's just get this clear out of the way right away from the start. Matthew is pulling no punches. The kingdom is coming. Um, some of you I want to pick a fight with because you say that fall is wonderful. You say fall is your favorite season. You get to wear sweater weather and you get to have pumpkin spice lattes and all kinds of fun things that you get to do in fall. And I, I hate fall because fall, as it gets colder and colder, it's just a reminder that we're never more than a few months away from winter and snow here in Canada. And I'm still thousands of kilometers away from Florida. So something is still wrong with this fallen creation right now. So for, for me, fall is ominous because what it means is there's an inevitability that winter is coming. Snow Snow is coming, cold is coming, and bitter days for me are coming. It's inevitable. It's coming. And Matthew's presenting the kingdom of heaven in the same way. If you're paying attention, the signs, the signs are all here. Look at how he describes this inevitability of this coming. Verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, which, by the way, means house of figs, uh, that's going to be a little bit significant in a few verses. When he comes to the house of figs, which is a city at the bottom of the Mount of Olives, then Jesus said to his two disciples, or then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey 
tied and a colt with her, the colt being the baby of the donkey, the adult donkey. And probably the reason why they have to bring two of them is because no one's ever ridden on the colt. So if all of a sudden there's great crowds of people and someone just sits on this colt that's never been trained, it's going to freak out. Having its mom there is going to be really helpful. So they bring the colt and the donkey together. And Jesus says, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, like, hey, why are you stealing someone else's donkey? You know, something like that. You shall say the Lord needs them. And it creates this wonderful bit of obscurity. What do you mean the Lord? This is, this is the word that would be translated for Yahweh. So it could, it could mean God. they're going to be used in God's service. Uh, it could also just mean the Lord, like sir, like the master, like Jesus himself on a human level. The master of the disciples who are stealing the donkey. Uh, th that master needs them, or it could mean something, you know, when you look back in retrospect a few years from now and realize the divinity of Jesus, you understand that the lordship of Jesus in his humanity is bound up with the lordship of God himself. It's a pregnant saying, the Lord needs them, it's worth contemplating, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was Spoken by the prophet saying, I, I love this, there's, there's two quotes kind of mashed in together here in verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, he's quoting from Isaiah 62, which is the way a prophecy of this salvation is being proclaimed. Salvation is coming, it's coming now. Isaiah, after so many chapters of judgment and woe and the destruction and all these things is pronouncing salvation is coming. This is the context of Isaiah 62. And then he quotes from Zechariah 9 which again prophesies the salvation that's coming in his king. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, full of a beast of burden. It's, it's, <laughs> this is not hard. You know, some, some prophecies are hard, right? There's like patterns of fulfillment, and Jesus says these cryptic sayings, like something greater than the temple is here. And you've got to do all this work in the background and the context and understand the flow of thought and the development of imagery through Scripture. This just says he's going to come riding on a donkey, and then he does. It cannot be clearer. It is clearly prophetic. The Savior of God's people is coming, riding into the city on a donkey, See, what you're supposed to pick up on is something amazing is happening here. Throughout Jesus' ministry, there's been this constant, okay, don't tell anyone. Stay quiet. Keep the news low. Keep this on the down low. He's traveling not in the major city of Jerusalem where there's going to be a big hubbub, but in all the villages and the towns around. Now he's coming into the capital city, marching right up to the temple in clear fulfillment of promise, declaring, here I Come, the veil is being pulled back. It is a deliberate act of self-revelation. How amazing are these circumstances, right? Just go in, you're going to find the donkey. There's going to be a colt, exactly as prophesied. Go get them, bring them back. Don't worry, the guy will let you do it. No one else will get in the way and stop you. That's a lot of circumstances to make sure they all line up in fulfillment of prophecy that by this point is hundreds and hundreds of years old. It's supposed to create the impression that this is beyond human power to either begin or to stop. 
It's coming because God is accomplishing all his purposes in Christ. And I love this, verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. We're, we're at this point now in, in Jesus' ministry where the disciples are like, I don't get it, whatever, but okay, let's go. And so they go and they steal. steal. I mean, maybe they stole. Maybe it was like uh, prearranged. It might have been prearranged. We don't know. So they go in. They take, I guess it'll work out. Hopefully we don't get arrested and miss Passover. They take the donkey and the colt and they bring them back to Jesus. And they understand now the significance significance of it when they bring them back to Jesus. So they take their cloaks and they lay them on the donkeys. This is, this is a, little, it's a little bit weird the way it's worded here. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Some people have in, in mind, no joke, some Bible scholars, they think too much. They, they like picture Jesus trying to ride on the donkey and the colt because it says he rode on them. <laughs> Like, like he's doing a Jean-Claude Van Damme, like doing the splits between them or something. Like, I don't know what's ha- what they're thinking is happening here. That's not what's happening. Jesus is sitting on the cloaks that have been laid on the colt, okay? So he's riding on the baby donkey that's never been ridden. He is bringing it into town. This is clearly repetition of Israel's history and prophecy. This is what happens when kings, conquering kings, ride in peace into a town. And there's a whole parade And they're praising him. Look at what they're saying. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. These are not random words. They're praises that are being lifted. The words are being lifted from Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm. Again, another prophecy that the Savior is coming for God's people. Salvation is coming. Salvation is now. The people that are traveling with Jesus into Jerusalem, they see it clearly. They proclaim it. Now listen, this is so important. Whenever in Scripture people start praising other humans, the humans say, stop. I'm not worthy. Whenever people misunderstand Jesus' sayings, he'll often correct them. Jesus does no such thing here. He accepts the praises, ratifying their interpretation of events. Yes, the king is coming. Salvation is coming. It is unstoppable. Anyone with eyes to see can see it. So so here comes Jesus on the donkey, surrounded by crowds. The crowd's going in front of him. The crowd's coming behind him. They're singing praise. They're praising him. They're, they're, They're pronouncing the king is coming. He's accepting it. He's receiving it. And he's on his way up to Jerusalem. From a distance, Jerusalem looks good. This looks Good. It looks like a tree that's got all kinds of leaves and you should expect some fruit. Everything is promising. What happens as he actually approaches Jerusalem next, though? As much as the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is not for everyone. Here's the second thing this passage shows us, is that the kingdom, this kingdom of heaven that's coming to earth, rejects the proud and this is, this is where we hit a bit of a snag. Uh, emotionally, sometimes intellectually, is when things don't go the way we think they should. Like, you know I did not write Matthew's gospel. Like, I didn't write the narrative of Jesus' life because it's not the way I would have imagined it at all. It's not the way I would have written the script. This is strange. As Jesus 
approaches Jerusalem, you pick up on the fact that God is doing something different than we would have planned. If we're, uh, we're going to play sports and, you know, you get captains for teams, if I'm one of the team captains, I'm picking the people that are best at that sport because I want to win, so I need the best on my team. If we're going to try to make a band and we're going to be famous and rich and we're going to make millions of dollars and be on the cover of magazines, I'm going to have auditions and I'm going to pick the best musicians to be in the band. It helps if you're good looking too, right? Like, come on, you got to have a whole, you got to be a full package. Like, we got to pick the best team. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, the capital where the influencers, the movers, the shakers, the power brokers are, Something seems like it is going wrong. The people that matter actually are opposing the king. Look at verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? This is ominous, right? If you're sitting down and reading Matthew's gospel, do you remember the, whole, the, the last time the whole city of Jerusalem was worked up about something? It was back in Matthew chapter 2 after Jesus was born and the magi, the wise men, came from afar and they came and they went into Herod's court and they said, where's the one who's born king of the Jews? And Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with them and they sought him to kill him. So here comes Jesus with all this praise and the adoration and all Jerusalem again is disturbed. They are troubled. They're asking, who is this? Who does this guy think he is? What are these crowds making him out to be? Verse 11, they said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. There's an ominous note struck as Jesus enters the city. What will happen is he goes to the heart of the city, the heart of the people of God, the very temple itself. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. What's happening? It's important to have a little bit of background here to understand the nature of what's happening here. So there was an inner court of the temple where only the pure uh, Jewish men could go. And then there's outer courts as you go further and further away from the presence of God until you get to the court of the Gentiles, which is where if you're a God-fearer who wants to worship the God of Israel, this is as close as you can get. There's also uh, a practice where when you come to the temple, obviously you're supposed to come and you're supposed to bring a sacrifice. But if you're one of the pilgrims who are traveling from far, you can't bring a, a little lamb. If you brought a lamb or something like that to sacrifice it would be worn out and dirty and not worth offering to Yahweh by the time you got there. So you need one to buy when you get there so that you can then sacrifice the animal to God in the temple. This practice of the buying and selling, the exchanging money, exchanging currencies so that you could use the proper currency in the temple used to take place in the Kidron Valley as you approached Jerusalem, as you approached the temple. But recently, the temple authorities had moved the marketplace into the court of the Gentiles. So if you're a Gentile and you want to worship God, you have to do it in the midst of a marketplace where, by the way, there are animals. And bartering. Have you ever, you ever been in a marketplace like this where you're walking and everybody's trying to sell you something? And, hey, hey, come here, come here. I got the best sheep. I got the most spotless lamb. I got... and, and it's chaos. And how are you supposed to worship? It's become a booming business rather than a place of worship. So Jesus will have none of it. 
He kicks them out. He drove them out. All who sold and bought in the temple. And he said to them, he explains it, verse 13, it is written. This is a... This is the same phrase that Jesus used when he quoted scripture against Satan when he was being tempted in the wilderness. It is written. It has been written. It is written. It will stand. God's word will stand. What is true? It's true. My house shall be called a house of prayer. This is God's heart as he quotes from Isaiah 56. Again, picturing in the restoration that Isaiah prophesies this day, this day when there will be pure worship again offered of God. A worship that welcomes in the foreigners and the unclean, the people who once had no access to God will one day have access. They will all be able to come in. This is God's heart in Isaiah 56. But it's so far from the heart of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. So he says, you make it a den of robbers. And here he's quoting from Jeremiah 7. Which again, I hope you're picking up on the inevitability piece of all of this. One scripture after another, after another, after another, all is being fulfilled. The, the problem in Jeremiah 7 was simply this. The quotation about the den of robbers means this. There were people who in Jeremiah's day worked and worshipped in the temple and lived like, yeah, we're God's, or, or proclaimed we're God's people. The profession was there, but when they walked out of the temple, they lived their own way. They lived unjust lives. They extorted other people. They took bribes. They worshipped other gods. They pursued whatever their heart desired and did not worship God with their lives. And then they said, God's judgment won't come on us because we've got the temple. And so they would flee back into the temple and, oh, we can pray to the name of Yahweh. And they would live like hypocrites and act like it's God's job to protect them in their hypocrisy. So God said, what is my temple? A den of robbers? Insurrectionists? Rebels? Is this what my temple is supposed to be? No. So what was his answer in Jeremiah 7? He said, I will destroy this temple like I destroyed the house of God at Shiloh. I'm going to do it again. Jesus, in quoting this prophecy from Jeremiah 7, is saying to them, you are hypocrites. You're proud. You are rebellious. You're living like rebels, but proclaiming to be my people. The temple won't protect you. I will destroy this temple because the worship has been perverted. So look at the contrast. He drives out those who sold and bought in the temples those who are part of the institution, the power brokers, the money people. But who comes in? Verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple. The blind and the lame were not allowed to come into the inner courts of the temple because they were unclean. This is an amazing enacted parable what Jesus is doing as he heals them he heals them as they come into the courts of the temple so that now they can go into the more inner places so that they are cleansed by Jesus not by the sacrifices they would have had to buy or the money they would have had to exchange but by Jesus himself they are cleansed and prepared so that they can go into the temple to actually engage in worship of God the blind and the lame who were the outcasts are welcomed in Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, they rejoiced. They praised God. No. They saw the wonderful things that he did. And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. You're kicking out our people? 
and bringing in the unclean, the lame, the pathetic, the poor. This is who you're welcoming in, the children. Children, really? Why don't you stop the children? They're singing these songs. They don't even know what these things mean. They're just repeating the phrases they heard the people singing on the way into the city. Why don't you stop them, Jesus? They said to him, verse 16, do you hear what these are saying? This is an abomination. God's heart is thrilled. Their proud hearts in rebellion against God and what he's doing and how he works. They disdain his work. Don't you hear what they're saying? Jesus responds, I love this. Yes. Haven't you ever read the Bible? <laughs> I love this. These are guys that teach the Bible for a living. <laughs> uh, have you guys ever read the thing? Because here's what it says. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Now, this is a brilliant answer for so many reasons. One, it gives them pause to reflect, to pause and consider. But another, the more you pause and reflect and consider and evaluate what's happening in retrospect, years down the road when Matthew writes his gospel, you can reflect on this reality. The children were proclaiming Psalm 118, the son of David, the Messiah. Salvation is coming in the son of David and Messiah. And the religious leaders say, hey, don't let them say that about you being the Messiah. And Jesus responds by quoting a psalm that says, no children must praise God. See the subtle shift? It's not just the Messiah that they're praising, but God himself. Because in the context of Psalm 8, the praise is obviously offered to Yahweh, to God himself. He will be praised by the children. So what does Jesus do? First, he drove the money changers out, and now he leaves the religious elite. He leaves them, leaving them. Verse 17, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is, this is remarkable. Do, do you remember there, there are two cities of David, one of his birth and one of his kingly reign? And his birth was Bethlehem. That's where David was born. That's where Jesus was born, too. Do you remember when Jesus was born? They came because of the census, and there was no room for him. No one wanted him. No, no one wanted him. His family was shameful. His mother was pregnant, out of wedlock. We don't want him. Bethlehem disowned him. Now he comes to Jerusalem at the end of his life as the coming king. And what happens again? Maybe it's because the town is just full because of all the pilgrims. Or maybe it wasn't safe. Maybe they would have tried to get him earlier on in the week. Whatever the case, now Jerusalem, there is no room for him, even now, for the son of David in the city of David. It's hard to describe how this would all hit. Um, for the people of Jesus' day, Jerusalem is the center of their national identity. The, the temple at the center of Jerusalem is the center of their religious identity. It's the center of everything that they are. And the rulers of the temple represent them. Like if we say, oh, we got an, an announcement from Queens Park today. An announcement from Ottawa today. You understand what that means. That someone is speaking on behalf of the nation. 
Someone is speaking on behalf of the province. Here, those who have the power and the influence speaking on behalf of the people are rejected by Jesus and rejecting Jesus. Jesus has declared that his house, the house of God, has become a place of hypocritical pride rather than humble prayer and praise. It's not a place of devotion, but a place of duplicity. It's not a place of extolling God, but extorting people, and he has rejected it. I wonder sometimes if this is why we get discouraged. Is because we think the way that the people of Israel would have thought. That if the kingdom is really coming, then the best way for it to come is for a few really rich and famous people to get saved. If, if some influencers were to become Christians and start using their platforms... If only we could get the right president, the right prime minister, if only there was the right leadership, if only there was the right politics, if, if, if only, and we try to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth the same way the kingdoms of earth already operate. And when it doesn't work that way, we get discouraged, we're surprised, we don't understand why it doesn't work that way, friends. None of this surprises Jesus. It was never the way it was designed to work. It was never his intention. Jesus is going to explain it all to his disciples. Look at verse 18. Again, here's another enacted parable that Jesus is living out in front of them to explain to them. How is it, as we're coming to Jerusalem, there's all these leaves, this big leafy tree, it looks wonderful, the people are praising him, the children, the blind, the lame, but in reality, when he comes into the temple, there's no fruit. There's no repentance, there's no acceptance of the king, there's no worship from the leaders. How could this be? Verse 18, in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Guys, just a note in passing. I think sometimes, well, I know sometimes, we read our Bibles way too quickly. If you contemplate what Jesus just said about Psalm 8, that God himself will receive praise from children, he's putting himself in the place of divinity, and then just two verses down in verse 18, he became hungry. This is an incredible, remarkable window into what we believe about Jesus existing in two natures, unmixed, undivided. Here is God receiving praises, God, and at the same time, man who is hungry. He became hungry. So what does he do? Verse 19, seeing a fig tree by the wayside. Apparently there were lots of figs around. It's where the town got its name. He sees one tree in particular that looks promising. It's not really the season for figs yet, but this one tree has leaves. And that's, that's telling because the leaves appear at about the same time as the first fruits. And so if there are leaves, there should be fruits. So he goes over to this tree in particular because it looked good. And he went to it and found nothing but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. There was a promise of receiving the Savior, bearing fruit, of being God's people. But when he came to the heart of the heart of the heart of the people, to the leaders of the people in the temple, there is no fruit. So like Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 7, the curse is coming. The curse is coming on the hypocrites and the proud. This does not surprise Jesus. Jesus. 
It will not stop Jesus. Jesus is sovereign over the temple and its rulers just like he's sovereign over a fig tree. See, we get hung up on the fact that the kingdom's not coming to who we think it should come to. and We miss the reality that it's coming to who Jesus wants it to come to. Here's the last thing Matthew shows us about this kingdom. This kingdom comes to the humble by faith. It doesn't come to the rich, to the powerful, to the proud. It comes to the humble, and it comes by faith. If you had tickets for um, Maple Leafs opening night, that's this week, right? I think, the, I think that's this week. The Maple Leafs are going to play again. And, and if you had tickets and you wanted to go with someone, you're looking for someone to bring with you, and if you're a Maple Leafs fan, I would be willing to bet you probably would not invite me. You would not invite me because... I cheer for a team that wins playoff series sometimes, and so I would troll you. I would troll you the whole time while we were watching the game, and you would not have any fun. That would be a miserable time. What would you do? You would find someone who is likewise a Leaf fan, because like goes with like, and the two of you would go together, and you would cheer for the same team, win or lose, probably lose, but win or lose, and you would have a great time together. Like finds like. The kingdom comes to a humble people. Don't miss this because the kingdom comes through a humble king. Do you remember all the way back in Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus is describing his heart, the core of his being? He said, I'm gentle and lowly. I'm meek and humble in heart. This is what characterizes our king. In this passage that Jesus is fulfilling from Zechariah 9, there were a couple words that were left out in the quotation that Matthew cites for us. In Zechariah 9, it includes this, righteous and having salvation is he. Matthew leaves that out. Leaves that out. Do you know why? Because he's emphasizing here the humility of Jesus. He's not coming on some big war horse. He's not bringing a chariot. He's not bringing an army with him. He's surrounded by children and pilgrims riding on a colt without any armor. He is humble and lowly. And he comes to those who are humble. The travelers, the lame, the blind, the children... And they are those who come to him by faith. They're asking for great things, right? Save us. Save Israel. Bring salvation to earth. Bring God's kingdom to earth. Bring it now. The lame are like, heal us. Let us walk again. The blind are asking to be able to see. They're asking miraculous, amazing things that require great faith. The disciples, likewise, need this lesson in faith. Jesus says to them in verse 20, Matthew says this, When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? They kind of missed the point. They should have said, Why did the fig tree wither at once? Because it's an illustration of what just happened and what's about to happen in the temple. But they're just amazed by the show of power, so they're asking about that. How did the tree wither at once? And Jesus sees the opportunity to weave the two lessons into one. And so Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Now some people make a big deal about which mountain this is. Is it the Mount of Olives? This mountain will be taken up and thrown? Is that a fulfillment of Zechariah 14? doesn't seem like it because that talks about the mountain being split rather than being thrown into a sea. It seems like a different thing. Maybe he's talking about the temple mount. So the temple mount is going to be overthrown in view of the destruction that Jesus is prophesying here. It doesn't seem like that either. It seems most simply like just moving mountains. It's, it's just a way of saying the impossible. 
The impossible things are going to happen by faith. The kingdom is going to come. The, the, the return from exile of God's people is going to come. All barriers will be removed. As the Great Commission is going to be given to the church in just a few chapters, the impossible will be done by faith, by the weak, by the humble, by those who come to him, by faith. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. There's lots of wrong ways we can take this declaration of a need for faith. Don Carson in his commentary addresses that. I, I like the way he words this. It's helpful for me. He says this, Belief, faith, same word, belief or faith in the New Testament is never reduced to forcing oneself to believe. I think I can. I think I can. I think I do. I think I do. If I could just work it up in me. It's never reduced to forcing oneself to believe what he does not really believe. Instead, it is related to genuine trust in God. Genuine trust. Do you actually trust God to do what he says he's going to do? Do you trust that he will accomplish his purposes? That his power is sufficient? Genuine trust in God and obedience to God and discernment of his will. So you perceive what is correct. You believe it for yourself and it results in action in obedience. Do you trust God? Are you one of the humble by faith? See, the kingdom, the kingdom does not come in good ways for everyone. It divides the proud or rejected. The humble by faith are welcomed in. Are you the humble by faith? We have to begin answering that question by asking this question. What do you believe about the humble king? The one who rides into Jerusalem to be rejected by people. In just a few days, he will go to the cross, carrying the sins, our sins, the sins of his people, covered in our shame, weighed down by our guilt. He will be strung up on a cross and nailed there. He will bleed and die, satisfying once and for all the wrath of God. For you, the judgment you deserve if you turn from your sin and trust, trust, genuine trust in Jesus. That means you need to own your sin, the ways that you've fallen short. It means you need to genuinely cast them on Jesus and trust that what he has done is sufficient and it's enough for you. That the resurrection on the third day proves that you, like Jesus, have been made right with God. You need to own in humility that there is no way for you to save yourself but simply only genuine trust in Jesus, the humble king who brings salvation. Now all of us, all of us, I think, want to think that's us, right? We want to be the humble ones who receive the kingdom. We, we don't want to be the religious hypocrites. We don't want to be in that category. But we need to think carefully because, again, appearances can be deceiving. A tree can be in leaf and have no fruit. So what's the test? Are you really one of the humble by faith? What's the test? 
Is there fruit? The faith that's at work in us must be faith that works through us. Our faith must not merely be profession, but also production. It has to bring change. What fruit are we to look for? As you're examining your life, what fruit do you see? Is there genuine worship of Jesus? This is, this is the children, right? This is the blind and the lame. This is the people who are in the parade, who are following Jesus, who are rejoicing. God's salvation has come. And they're spreading their cloaks. Why are they doing that? I don't know. They're going to be dirty. But it's just an expression of my heart's overflowing. I love him. He's the king. I have to proclaim him. Is there in your heart, yes, imperfectly, and yes, waveringly, and yes, not every day with the same intensity, but is there worship of Jesus the king? Do you have affection and love for him? Is your, life's, is your heart's desire to see Jesus praised and honored and worshipped? Not just worship, but obedience. Is there obedience in your life, in all of your life, to Jesus as king? This was the problem, right? In Jeremiah 7, and when Jesus is overthrowing the tables in the temple, is that there's a sense in which people feel like they can come into the house of God and worship, and they're okay, even though the rest of their life is not being lived in obedience. Is there obedience in your life? Like down to the really hard things. Like the friends that I might need to distance myself from to walk closely with Jesus. Like the relationships that I can or cannot engage in. Because Jesus is my king. Like, like justice in my life. In, in terms of how I treat other people and care for those around me. And engage with the world around me. See, here's the thing. If you're more godly at church than you are in your home or your workplace, you're not really godly anywhere because what God is looking for is a consistency of character, a consistency of devotion that permeates to every corner and sphere of your life. Are you obedient to Jesus as king? Are you laboring for the kingdom? That's where this is all going, right? With the, the Great Commission. This is the promise that Jesus is going to work through prayer, by faith, by the humble who pray in Jesus' name. There will be mountains moved. So are you laboring in prayer? Are you laboring in prayer for the kingdom? Are you laboring in prayer for your fellow members? Are you laboring to share the gospel with unbelievers? To share the gospel with believers? That's called discipleship. Are you laboring to serve your church leaves outward appearance of godliness is not enough. Jesus draws near and he's looking for fruit. The kingdom of heaven is coming to earth. Jesus has made that clear. It will divide. What he's looking for is not an appearance of religion, but the actual bearing of fruit. Not because we're great and we're strong and we can work it up, but because we're humble and broken, but we cast ourselves on him by faith and he in his power works through us for his glory because he, though humble, is a great and magnificent king. And as we live for that kingdom, he gives us the joy and the privilege of remembering and believing not just on Sunday, but on Monday morning too. The kingdom of heaven is coming to earth.
Let's pray.